Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I will read further in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Here again, God's word. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he is a stone of stumbling for many, but for even more, he is the chief cornerstone. Oh, Father, may we build upon him today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be the people you have called us to be, to live out our identity in Christ and to fulfill the mission that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, of furthering his kingdom, of doing good works that the pagans might observe and come to glorify you, that they might be converted by our testimony in word and deed. Bring us to maturity, O Lord, in Christ Jesus, that we might fulfill the mission you've given to us in him as well. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You will be made to care. As Christians, we really can't avoid the so-called culture wars, can we? As much as we might like to mind our own business, to lead quiet and peaceable lives, to go about our jobs and our family life, the culture wars keep seeking us out. Even if you're not interested in the culture war, it is very much interested in you. Seems like almost every week there is a new incident, some Christian getting attacked for holding biblical convictions in some area, uh, frankly, convictions that in many cases were common sense, uh, perhaps just a few short years ago. Uh, Karen Pence just wanted to teach art at a Christian school, but in the last week has found herself criticized in the national media and called a bigot uh, because the school she teaches at requires its teachers to, lo and behold, live out a Christian sex ethic and define marriage in a biblical way. Uh, we all know the story of Jack Phillips from uh, Colorado, who keeps ending up in the news. All he's wanted to do is bake his cakes, mind his own business and bake his cakes, but he has found himself in trouble again and again because he won't bake cakes to celebrate events that contradict his religious faith. Now, let's try to put all this in perspective. Those are just two examples of many that we could give, things that are going on uh, continually. Uh, we need to put this in perspective. In one sense, it really doesn't matter. It's really not a surprise. When Christians are attacked in this way, this is just the world being the world. The world is going to be worldly. This is what the world does. And not only that, but we know that Christians can thrive when our faith is under attack. This is nothing new. And if this kind of thing were to happen to any of us, we ought to receive it joyfully knowing it is a great privilege to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To suffer for Christ's sake is a great privilege. So this is not necessarily a bad thing at all. These kinds of attacks can serve to strengthen and mature the church in the long run and even open up new doors for effective mission and evangelism that weren't there before. 
And of course, too, keeping all of this in perspective, we need to recognize that these are very small forms of suffering that Christians in America are uh, occasionally undergoing, what we occasionally endure in this country. It's really nothing compared to the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Islamic countries or in communist countries and places like much of the Middle East, in China, in North Korea, their Christians are really suffering uh, at the hands of brutal regimes. But because such attacks are relatively new experiences for American Christians, it's not a bad thing for us to take a step back and ask, how should we relate to our culture? What is the big picture here? What does faithfulness look like here and now? It's easy to think that our culture, uh, particularly our cultural elites, have simply gone insane. Because this is what always happens when men forget God. They go crazy. I could read you headlines from a satirical website like the Babylon Bee. If you're not familiar with the Bee, I urge you to check it out. Uh, but I could read you headlines from the Babylon Bee right alongside headlines from CNN, and you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The world has quite literally become a parody of itself. We live in a world where a gay person supposedly cannot change because he was born that way, while a man who feels like he is a woman can become one, and how dare you question that? Uh, ideas that are contradictory, that are crazy, that don't make any sense. What is regarded as politically incorrect changes about every 10 minutes, or maybe it's even every five minutes, even if you wanted to avoid even the smallest microaggression, it's almost impossible to keep up with these ever-changing standards for what counts as an offense. So what are we to do? How do we live in this kind of culture? What is the big picture here? What is God's purpose for his people, for his church? I think 1 Peter 2 is a great place to go to think about these issues. It was uh, this is from a letter written to small Christian communities who were facing persecution and opposition in the Roman Empire. They did not fit into the Roman Empire any more than we fit into the American Empire. And they needed to be reminded of their identity, of their calling. They needed to be called to maturity and they needed to be reminded of the mission they had been given. And that's really what we see here. Uh, I'm not going to try to touch on everything in this text. I've preached on this text before. It says all kinds of wonderful things about the church I'm not even going to try to address this morning. But there are three themes that, uh, that emerge here that I think help us understand the church's relationship to the wider culture. Three ways of looking at the church's relationship to the culture. First, the church is a culture. Second, the church is a counterculture. And third, the church is the transformer of culture. So church as culture, church as counterculture, and church as transformer of culture. When we ask about the church's relationship to the culture, the church's relationship to the world, I think this is a helpful paradigm for us to use. And I think it's all here in 1 Peter chapter 2. First, consider the church as a culture. Look at verse 9. Peter there says to uh, these Christians, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All those labels he puts on the church are important, but I especially want to camp out on that nation part of it. What does it mean for the church to be a nation? It's interesting. Here the church is called a nation. In other places, the church is called a city, which is kind of similar. It's a similar way of thinking about the church, but uh, here, Paul says we are a nation. We need to learn to think of ourselves as a nation. How are we, as the church, a nation? What does that mean? Certainly it means the Christian faith is not just a set of ideas. It's not just a philosophy or a worldview. Being a Christian is not just having certain ideas floating around in your head. To be a Christian is to be a part of a community. Jesus didn't die for Christianity. Jesus died for the church. And there's a world of difference in looking at it in those two different ways. Jesus died for a community. He died for a people. The Christian faith, not we could say this, the Christian faith only exists in embodied communal 
formed. The only way to be a Christian is to be in the church. Now, some people don't like to hear that because they don't really like the church. They might say, oh, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, or I'm a post-church Christian. That, you hear that kind of thing today. But for a Christian, the church is necessary. What water is to a fish, the church is to the Christian. It's just where we live. We live in the church. We inhabit the church. We're part of this institutional thing called the church. There's no Christian living, no Christian life without the church. Now, I'm a pastor. I recognize everybody's got problems with the church. Everybody's got problems with the church because there's always sin in the church. But the bottom line is there is no other place to be a Christian. Every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And if that weren't bad enough, they've all got a sinner as the pastor as well. But there's no other place to be a Christian. Just like there was no other place to be saved in the days of Noah's Ark, no matter how bad it smelled on board with all those animals, that was the only place to be, the only place of salvation. So it is with the church. No matter how bad it stinks at times, this is where we have to be. This is where God has put us. This is where the Christian life takes place. There's no life outside of the church. There's no way to be a Christian outside of the church. So if you want to find Christ's life and Christ's truth, this is where you've got to be, is in the church. So we've got to start with that. The church as God's covenant community. The place of His saving work. The first form of Christian culture then is found in the church herself. The church is the alpha form of Christian culture. No, it's not a perfect Christian culture because, again, Christians are still sinners. But it's the first place Christian culture is manifest. Peter says to these Christians, you are a holy nation. I know you live in the Roman Empire. I know, in some sense, you're Romans. You're part of the Roman nation. But at a deeper level, at a more fundamental level in terms of who you are, you are Christians, you are part of this holy nation, this Christian nation of the church. When Peter says the church is a holy nation, he's really saying the church is the new Israel. Israel, of course, had been chosen as God's nation. They were God's holy people. But now you can think of the church as a new and more mature and enlarged Israel, a transformed Israel. But when Peter calls us a nation, he means even more than that. The church is a unique nation in that she exists within the nations of the world. She's not, a, she's not geographic the way other nations are. In fact, I think Peter makes that clear at the opening of his letter uh, when he says he's writing to those who have been dispersed into Pontus and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. So just like you could be an American and you could go live in France and you would be an American in France in exile or as a pilgrim there perhaps. So these are Christians, members of this holy nation who are dwelling scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But all together they make up a holy nation. A nation that exists within the nations of the world. If the, if the church is not a nation in the geopolitical sense, in what sense is the church a nation? What does it mean to call the church a nation? That's how William Willimon puts it, describing the church as a culture. He says, the church is a distinct culture with her own vocabulary, grammar, and practices. He says, if I were to walk into a class on introductory physics, I would not expect to understand immediately most of the vocabulary, terminology, and concepts. Why should it be any different for modern Americans walking into a church? When they walk into the church, it's like they're immigrants entering another nation. Of course it's going to take them a while to learn the language, as it were, to learn our vocabulary, to learn our way of life. Willimon says there's no way I can crank the gospel down to the level where any American can walk in off the street and know what it's all about within 15 minutes. You can't even do that with baseball. You know, baseball's kind of got its own culture. Uh, you have to learn the game of baseball, the nuances, the finer points. You can watch the game for years and still learn something new. Well, how much more should we expect this to be true of the Christian faith? There's always more to learn. 
says it's a strange assumption for Americans to feel they already have the equipment necessary to comprehend the gospel without any modification of lifestyle, without any struggle, in short, without being born again. To enter into this nation, you have to be born anew. You have to be born as a citizen of this nation, reborn by a work of God's Spirit, reborn by water and the Spirit. That's how you enter into this nation. Think about this. Unpack this a little bit further. Nations have their own cultures, don't they? Their own stories with their own heroes and villains, their own rituals that mark them out in certain ways that reinforce their identity, their own calendar with days of feasting and fasting, their own music and art, their own special meals, their own governments, their own shared way of life. And so it is with the church. You take all those features of a nation, the church has all of those characteristics, all of those features in herself. The church is a culture with her own defining story, the gospel story. When we recite the creed week after week after week, we are rehearsing our defining story, the story of Jesus himself. We have our defining rituals like baptism and the Eucharist. And the practices of the liturgy that continually reprogram our lives, restructure our lives, reorient our lives, and that mark us out as a distinct people in the world. We've got our own calendar, of course, most foundationally, the weekly Lord's Day, but also all those other days and seasons of the Christian year that have been built up over time in the tradition of the church. We've got our own music with the psalms and the hymns that uh, have been given to us. We've got our own special meal with bread and wine, the Eucharist. We've got our own government with our own officers to rule over us and courts to make judgments when needed. That's what a session or a presbytery is, really a court. It's It's a governing body that makes judgments, that issues ruling. And of course, we've got our own shared way of life, an ethic we are all committed to. Ultimately, a life of imitating Jesus, a, a life of love and truth flowing out of our trust in Him. We live by this ethic, this shared way of life. In all of these ways and more, the church is a culture of her own, just like Israel before her had a culture of her own. God gave to Israel a defining story, the story of the Exodus, how God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He gave them certain rituals to mark them out, to identify them as his people, circumcision and the Passover, uh, central among them. He gave them a sacred calendar so they could celebrate certain events and be reminded continually of who they were. He gave them a songbook uh, with a book of Psalms. Uh, he gave them a unique way of life laid out for them in the Torah. The ethic of the Torah was to be Israel's way of life and would set Israel apart from all the other nations. Israel alone would live this way according to this law code. See, what does it mean to be a disciple? Discipleship is really a process of enculturation. It's learning to live within and contribute to the culture of the church. Discipleship is first and foremost learning the culture of the church and making it your own. Again, I think all of this is part of what Moses is saying to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says to the people, observe these laws that you might be my holy nation. As if to say, observe these laws that you might be a distinct culture, a distinct people with a unique way of life. And all the nations around you will see this and take note and be drawn to you. They will say, no other nation knows how to live like the Israelites know how to live. No other nation has a God as wise and righteous as the God of the Israelites. We want to be like the Israelites. And their way of life, their distinct culture really became a form of mission. So when we talk about engaging the culture, the issue is not just how does the individual Christian relate to the culture. That's usually how we frame it. How should I relate to this culture of which I am a part? But that's not the only question to ask or even the most foundational, fundamental question to ask. It's not just how does the individual Christian relate to the culture. It's how does the church as the church relate to the culture. And because the church is God's special nation, we're really talking about how one nation relates to another nation. How does the Christian nation of the church relate to the American nation? How does one culture relate to another culture? How does the culture of the church 
relate to the culture of America. And that really brings us to the second dimension, the church as a counterculture. To say the church is a culture and then to say the church's culture is distinct inevitably leads to this understanding of the church as a kind of counterculture. The church's relationship with the wider culture is certainly not fixed or static. It's dynamic, it's fluid, it's variable based on what's happening in the world. How much we can feel at home here in America, in this wider culture, depends on how much harmony there is between the church's culture and American culture. And of course, that changes continually. How much of American culture can we embrace depends on what's happening in that culture. How comfortable we can get with being Americans depends on what's happening in America. The more we disciple our nation, of course, the more at home we can feel here. But of course, we know we have a long ways to go in that right now. For Christians, America feels like a strange land. Because it is. We should certainly feel like pilgrims and exiles here in a certain sense because this culture as it exists right now can't be our home. There's too much disharmony between who we are as Christians and where American culture is going. There's this tension. As a counterculture, we've got a different way of naming things, a different vocabulary. Think about this. What the world calls an affair or some other relatively benign term, we would call adultery. What the world calls reproductive justice, we would call the unjust murder of the innocent. The world labels things one way, we label them another. Sometimes there's overlap. It's not different at every single point, but a lot of times there's not. Peter identifies us as a counterculture when he calls us holy. That word alone sets us apart as a counterculture because that's really what the word holy means. To be set apart, to be consecrated. It means we belong to God in a way the world does not. We belong to God and we are seeking to live in accord with his standards. We're seeking to value what God values. And this is going to make us look different. This is going to make us stand out. It's going to make us an alternative to the world. Some Christians, of course, don't want to be a counterculture. They get uncomfortable with this call to holiness. They don't want to stand out like that. They don't want to stick out. They want to blend in. They're not comfortable with this distinctness, with this differentness. And so what do they do? They end up compromising. They end up accommodating the culture around them too much. They seek to make the church's culture look like the world's culture as much as possible. But that is fundamentally unfaithful. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, do not be conformed to the world. He says, don't let the world mold you and shape you. Or I like how Flannery O'Connor put it. She said, push back against the world as hard as it pushes against you. The world's pushing pretty hard on Christians right now. We need to be pushing back, not accommodating, but countering. So what does that look like? What does it mean to stand out as God's holy people, as his countercultural people? Think about some of the ways that we should be countercultural right now. We live in a culture of constant outrage. Have you noticed that? I mean, if you pay any attention to social media or uh, the news networks, one of the constant themes is the next thing to be outraged over. People are constantly getting offended and getting angry. The news media, in fact, has become outrage brokers, even provoking this kind of outrage. Uh, our culture has become a culture of outrage. And a lot of times the outrage happens uh, over some story before all the facts are even out. And that's because the facts don't really matter. What matters is this narrative of offense, this narrative of outrage. But we Christians, we are a counterculture. Outrage is not one of our tools. It's not one of the features of our culture. 
When the Apostle Paul went into synagogues to teach, or when he went into Greco-Roman cities, the unbelieving Jews and the pagans would get outraged. But what would Paul do? He would keep his calm. He would keep his wits about them. He would keep reasoning with them about the truth. I think there's a wonderful little picture of this right in the middle of the book of Acts, in Acts 19, 20, and 21. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's been preaching the gospel and uh, a riot breaks out. There's outrage. And he, he's dragged out and he's beaten for preaching the gospel. There is a furious mob uh, that goes after Paul because Paul's preaching, as it turns out, is really bad for the idol-making business. It's bad for the local economy, this gospel Paul's preaching. And so they break out in a riot. It's a mob that goes after Paul. A couple chapters later, that, that's a pagan mob there in Acts 19. In Acts 21, there's another little vignette, another little picture of this. Paul is preaching, this time to Jews, and another riot breaks out. The Jews are so enraged by Paul's message that Jesus is the Messiah. And again, Paul's attacked. But what's interesting is slotted right between those two stories of pagan outrage and Jewish outrage. In Acts chapter 20, you've got the record of a church meeting. So we've seen what the pagans do, we've seen what the Jews do, but what do the Christians do? They come together. And in Acts chapter 20, they come together to listen attentively and peacefully to Paul's preaching. They break bread together, forming themselves into a new community. And so instead of outrage, there is love and harmony and peace. It's a beautiful picture. But it's right between these two images of outrage on the part of the pagans and the unbelieving Jews. The church is not an outrage culture. The church is a counterculture. We are counter to all of that. Here's another way in which we have to live as a counterculture. We've constantly seen our culture attack God's created order, God's created design for marriage and for sex and for gender, for who we are as men and women. Our culture is throwing off all restraint. Uh, our culture is seeking to redefine marriage, redefine manhood, redefine womanhood, redefine everything. Now, really, this you, you got to rewind the tape quite a ways back. We can go back at least to when no-fault divorce became the law of the land. That started to redefine marriage right there. But then, of course, you've got the Obergefell ruling uh, that created um, same-sex partnerships, calling them marriage in our culture. Of course, you've also now got the transgender movement, uh, where in some places you can be fined if you will not use the, uh, the pronoun, the preferred pronoun uh, that someone wants you to use. In light of all of that, how can we be a counterculture? Well, we certainly have to speak the truth in love about these things. We speak the truth in love about God's design for marriage, for family, for sex. Uh, that's a big part of it. We need to be speaking about these things. But you know what best, what, what the best defense of God's design really is? The best defense of God's design for these things is living it out joyfully. When we live out family life and our sexuality faithfully and joyfully, that's really the best defense there is. And I think in the long run, if we do this, people will look and say, wow, those Christians, they actually knew what they were talking about. They were right about marriage and about all these things uh, where, where, where we've tried to redefine the world. They were right all along. When our wives are happy and embrace their roles as mothers, when our children are joyfully obedient, when we are faithful in our marriages, it shows the world a genuine alternative. It is a way of pushing back. It's a joyful pushback, not an outraged pushback, but a joyful pushback against the world. Or what about masculinity? We hear a lot about that these days. Uh, toxic masculinity. Uh, that's now become a standard part of the vocabulary. And, and what is identified as toxic masculinity has continually shifted. It started out as being men who were abusive towards women, which, of course, that really is toxic, and that is a huge problem. But now masculinity in general, or what's been called traditional masculinity, has been identified as toxic. Our culture is therefore attacking the kind of masculinity that carved a civilization out of the wilderness here. 
the kind of masculinity that defeated the Nazis and put a man on the moon. Now, men, do you know why masculinity is under attack? You know especially why our elites attack masculinity? Men, it's because they want you weak. Because weak men are easy to control. They always do what they're told. Men who are embarrassed to be men have no backbone, no courage, no conviction. Strong men, on the other hand, are a real problem for any would-be tyrant. Strong men are countercultural. They're willing to be countercultural. They're men who are willing to pay the price and take risks to do what is right. They're the kind of men who can change the world. So if the world is saying manhood is toxic, how should the church be a counterculture? The church should show the world a different kind of man, a different kind of manhood, a different kind of masculinity. We should show the world God's design and calling for men is actually good. That true masculinity uses strength and dominance and competitiveness and even those stoic tendencies that men have for the good of others. To serve and sacrifice and build up others and protect others and provide for others. And so in the church, this is what we should be doing. This is the kind of manhood we should be fostering. We should be training our boys for dominance. Dominance meaning taking dominion, mastering some area of life, being excellent, becoming the best they can be. We should train our boys to be strong and to fight. But we should train them to use their strength for good, to defend others. We should train them to fight, but to fight for what is good, for what is right. And in this way, we become counter-cultural. The church should produce a crop of counter-cultural men, comfortable with their masculinity, living out true manhood according to God's design. Strong, aggressive, competitive men who know how to use their strength for the good of others. What about children? In our culture, children are viewed as a nuisance. So much so, they can be destroyed in the womb if they're considered inconvenient or if they in any way would get in the way of adult fulfillment. Uh, Abortion is a big and complicated issue but it's one that the church must continually address. One thing that I have seen, I'm sure you've seen this too, is how abortion has gone from something that even those who were advocates of it were a little bit embarrassed about, you know, the safe, rare, legal view of abortion, to now celebrating abortion as some great achievement, especially for women. New York State uh, has just passed one of the most vicious pro-choice bills in all of the world allowing infants to be killed right up to the time of birth. And when this law was passed, I don't know if you saw this, but when this law was passed, it got a standing ovation. The World Trade Center was lit up pink to celebrate supposedly this great achievement for women's rights. That tells you all you need to know about our culture's view of children. That's the culture. We're a counterculture. So what is our view of children? We embrace children. We celebrate children. We care for children. We're willing even to take in unwanted children. Those children they would slaughter, we will take in. We will embrace. This is something Christians have done going all the way back to the Roman Empire. When babies, they couldn't be aborted in the womb as easily, so they were just left out. They were exposed to die. Christians would come along and pick up the babies and raise them at their own expense. Something unheard of. In the time, Christians were a counterculture in this area. We don't sacrifice our children. We make sacrifices for them. And in so doing, we are a counterculture. What are some other ways we're a counterculture? The world has lost its integrity. So we must be people who traffic in the truth. People who do what we say we're going to do. People who... Uh, will not give themselves over to hypocrisy, but people who live honest and faithful lives, lives with integrity. There's no integrity in the world. Even if there once was, there's not now. We're a counterculture by living with integrity. The world's full of bitterness. You screw up in the eyes of the world. There is no forgiveness for you. There's no mercy. 
The church is a place of forgiveness. We practice forgiveness. We know how to extend forgiveness. The world is an ungrateful place. We are a people whose lives are full of continual thanksgiving. If you give thanks instead of grumbling, that makes you countercultural today. Supposedly, Voltaire once said, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. If you criticize this or that, you're going to get in big trouble. We know who we can't criticize in our culture today. But the thing is, we really don't care. We're going to criticize anyway because we're Christians. We're a counterculture. We don't mind criticizing our culture's sacred cows because we don't answer to the cultural elite. We're not bowing down before them. We don't need their approval. We've got God's approval, and that's so much better. We will speak out against statism or feminism or transgenderism or anything that sets itself up against the truth of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says we tear down these demonic strongholds using the truth of God. As the church, we are a holy nation, a holy culture, a holy counterculture. We belong to God. We will answer to Him and we will do our best to represent Him and speak for Him in the meantime. As a counterculture, we will seek to model what true human life, what renewed human life looks like. The true way of being human. We're going to show the world what it is. One of the Dutch theologians, A.A. Van Ruler, once said, we become Christian in order that we might be truly human. We Christians, we're not the weird ones. We're the normal ones. We're the ones who are living life according to God's design. Everybody else is weird. It's everybody else who has gone crazy. We're the ones who are living life the way God has designed. The world is blind. The world has gone insane. The world is in the dark. We say to the world, look, this is how you live in the light. This is how God created you to live. And of course, as we do these things, our hope is that this will transform our culture. This is the third dimension. We want to see our culture discipled and renewed. Look at how Peter describes this process. It really echoes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And I'm going to paraphrase here. This is 1 Peter 2.12. Let me paraphrase it for you. When you live honorably among the nations, when you conduct yourselves with honor, they may speak against you as evildoers. They may make false accusations against you, calling you bigots or racists or sexists, calling you backwards. But in the end, by seeing your good works, by seeing your good way of life, they will come to glorify God. That's our task, and this is how we transform our culture. We've been given the task of discipling this nation, of course, every nation is to be discipled, but we're given the task to disciple this nation. We live in America, so our first concern is with discipling America. We're called to be salt and light here, living in such a way that the nation can look at us and say, no other people has such a wise God. We should do what they're doing. They alone know how to live. That's one of the pagans said about the early Christians. The Christians alone know how to live. They're the ones who have life figured out. They're living according to the divine design. Now, cultural change is certainly mysterious. There are no formulas. It's unpredictable. But we do know that God desires the transformation of the nations. We know he has promised the nations to his son and through him to us. We know that God hears the songs and prayers of his people on behalf of the nations. It's easy to look at our culture and see nothing but a battlefield. But we really need to see a mission field. We have the answers our culture needs. Our culture is asking all kinds of questions. Because we have God's Word, we have the answers. Our world is ripe for mission. It might look bleak, but the Gospel of God is invincible. There is no reason for any Christian to despair. Early 18th century England was not all that different from early 21st century America. It was a nation that had once been largely Christianized but had fallen away from that into all kinds of corruption and depravity. The Puritans and Presbyterians, the most serious Christians in the country, were being persecuted rather openly. That's actually why a lot of them fled. 
uh, and came to this part of the world. Deism and other forms of cynicism were rapidly replacing the Orthodox Christian faith in the universities, certainly, but also in the churches. The British elite were especially morally and sexually corrupt, including gays and bisexuals and transvestites in the monarchy and throughout the ruling class. And this corruption, the sexual corruption, was being celebrated openly. The slave trade, mostly using British ships, kidnapped and carted literally millions of Africans across the Atlantic against their wills. There was a huge divide between rich and poor, with the rich taking advantage of the poor and oppressing the poor in business and in the courts. Babies were regularly left out to die or were simply not cared for in their early years. In fact, between 1730 and 1750, three out of four children in London died before their fifth birthday, largely due to neglect. Most of these deaths were easily preventable. But there was just no interest in preserving uh, the lives of these children. That's an even worse rate than, say, the abortion rate in New York City. Three out of four children dying. Gambling was rampant. Pornography was abundant in the city of London. Brothels were common. Alcoholism and other forms of substance abuse were so common, it became known as the gin age between 1720 and 1750. It was the gin age in London. A main form of entertainment was the bloody sport of animal baiting. Into this moral and spiritual quagmire stepped a number of godly and faithful men. John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, probably the biggest names, but certainly there were others. This handful of faithful men led what became known in history as the Great Awakening. And we know about the Great Awakening, but what we don't know is how dark things were in England before the light of the Great Awakening shone upon the nation. England needed an awakening because it had become so utterly depraved. And these men renewed England. How did they do it? Through their preaching and through their serving. The Wesleys and the Whitfields and others like them endured brutal assaults, slanderous attacks in the press. I mean, Karen Prince has got nothing on these guys. Uh, several times, each one of them uh, narrowly escaped death. They would preach wherever they could gather people to listen. You know, Wesley was famous for saying, the world is my parish. They would throw things at Wesley as he was preaching, and sometimes he'd get you know, cut on the face and just wipe the blood away and keep right on going because he was determined to preach. He didn't return outrage with outrage. He returned outrage with the preaching of peace. They preached the gospel, which led to countless conversions, but also led to amazing social changes culminating with William Wilberforce's lifelong struggle to outlaw the slave trade, which finally happened in the 1830s. Wilberforce had been converted under Wesley's ministry. Whitfield himself had uh, opened up an orphanage and, and, and had uh, cared for unwanted children. You know, getting the, the slave trade abolished in the 1830s the way Wilberforce did you need to understand, that would be that was just as remarkable in his day as if we were able to completely outlaw abortion in our nation today. It was that kind of change. Over a 75-year period, from 1750 to 1825 or so, England was almost completely transformed. She became an evangelical nation. She walked back her apostasy. One historian sums it up this way. He says the Great Awakening was a source from which issued many streams. Before Wesley, the devout and evangelical clergy were a tiny remnant in the church in England. After him, they became the dominant religious influence inside and outside the church of England. A further fruit of Wesley's work were the conversions of William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury, and others, and the development of what is called the Clapham sect. This community of Christians included businessmen, bankers, politicians, colonial governors, and members of parliament whose ceaseless sacrificial labors benefited millions of their fellows at home and abroad, especially in Africa and India. Restoration of the authority of the Bible in the English world amounted to a civilization finding its soul. John Wesley's life under God refutes the idea that history is bound to go down toward corruption 
The biblical revival changed history by transforming the character, words, thoughts, and deeds of men and women. It prevented a French-style bloody revolution in England that had seemed inevitable given the harshness of 18th century English social, political, and religious life. Instead of a bloody revolution, they got godly reformation. Now what about us? It may seem there's no way something similar, you know, some kind of similar renewal and awakening could happen here. But by God's grace, it certainly could. Sure, it seems we are surrounded by unbelief and the craziness that comes from it. But remember this. Here's another little story. In the Battle of the Bulge, General McAuliffe said to his troops, as it looked like they were on the brink of disaster, he said, men, we are surrounded by the enemy, which means we have the greatest opportunity ever presented to any army. We can attack in any direction. And that's the church in America today. We can attack in any direction. So it is for us. The more our culture departs from God's ways, the more stark the contrast between the church's culture and the world's culture becomes, the more opportunities we have. The more opportunities we have to carry out the mission God has given to us. To fight for love and truth and beauty and goodness All of God's gifts to us. Gifts He's given to us. Gifts we now want to share with the world. We've been brought out of the darkness into the light. And now we're calling others to come and join us in the light. That's our mission as Christ Church. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for bringing us to maturity in Christ Jesus and calling us to share in His mission. May we be faithful. May we be holy. May our church community be the kind of culture that you've designed for the church to be. May we be the kind of counterculture, the kind of alternative to the world that you want us to be in this moment. And may we be the transformers of our culture, bringing change and renewal and reformation to this land and indeed to the world. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. God of God, Lord of Lords, we give thanks to you, Father, for your good and your steadfast love endures forever. You alone do great wonders, and by your wisdoms the heavens and earth were made. O Lord of hosts, you are the God of all nations of the earth. The heavens are yours, the earth is yours, and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. You and you alone, O God, are King of all the earth. You love righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of your loving kindness. Throughout history, you have brought your enemies to ruin, but rescued and shown great mercy to those who fear you. You will judge the righteous and the wicked, and there is a season and a time for every purpose and for every work. We give thanks to you, God of heaven, for your mercy endures forever. All the world and all it contains is yours, Father, and today we come before you in prayer for the sake of the world. In your great mercy, look with compassion upon all those who call upon you for help. We ask that you turn men's hearts to your ways and give us peace. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Govern the hearts and minds of the world's leaders and all those in authority. Bring the nations of the world, divided and torn by the ravages of sin, to be subject to Christ's just rule. In a world hostile to your commandments, give peace to your church. Protect your church from the evil one. Grant it peace and in the face of persecution. In a broken world filled with fear, hunger, and despair, may your church be found faithful in ministry and delivering the only true hope, the hope of Christ. We pray for the persecuted church around the world, in China, especially the early reign covenant church, in North Korea, Pakistan, Nigeria, Iran, India, Protect and comfort your church in situations where fearing you rather than fearing men causes your children to be objects of hatred, imprisonment, and death. In this world, Christ warned that we would find trouble for his sake, but may they indeed take heart and know that you have overcome this world. We are seeing the mounting hatred of Christians in our own country, Father, and we ask that you turn the tide that is rising against us 
But if in your wisdom it needs to continue for a season, may we walk humbly and yet boldly, confident in your love. Christ Jesus is indeed the light of the world, so may his church be light set upon a hill. Your son said, go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. And we pray for those who labor on the mission field around the world, heeding Christ's command. Protect them, deliver them, nourish them, and make their work fruitful, Father. May they hope in you in all things. We pray especially for Peru Mission and the teams in Trujillo and Cajamarca and their work in church planting in the Geneva School of the Bethesda Medical Clinic the micro-lending ministry. We pray for your blessings upon Wes and Jamie Baker as Wes leads the work there. Give him a continuing vision and support for spreading the gospel throughout Peru. We pray for Rebecca McElwain as she teaches in the Geneva School. We ask for safety and success for the UAB medical team, along with Greg Bourgeois, Grady Maddox, and Mike Narvison, who will be traveling to Trujillo in June. We ask that you grow the CREC church that has formed in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We pray for Mataka Evangelical Church in Tokyo, for Pastor Steve Jeffrey and Emmanuel Evangelical Church in North London, for Francis and Donna Fukushan and Huguenot Heritage Ministries, for the Joint Eastern European Project of the CREC, and for Ansel and Presbyterians work there. Father, we continue to bring you the needs of this congregation also for our sick and those who need healing, those in distress, those facing possible job changes, those needing better work situations, for our aging parents, relatives, and friends, for our parents, relatives, and friends who do not know you and need to know your grace, our children, that they may grow strong in grace and understanding, for our husbands and wives, that they may seek to build more godly marriages. For our singles, that they may find faithful spouses. Our couples looking to grow their families, that they may be blessed with children. Our students, that they may see through the temptations of our culture. And remember that that all truth is from you, Father. All these things and whatever more you see that we may need, we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now we pray together as one, Father, as Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.